Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Thank you for being with us on ADH at the beginning of a new week, dominated, as you know, by almost a universal outpouring of grief at the passing of arguably the world's most remarkable woman, Queen Elizabeth II. I'll obviously have something to say, something of difference about this tonight, and I'll keep you posted on things that you'd like to know in the days ahead. I'm no Nostradamus, as I've said to you many times, but I did tell you from the outset when the New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet stood down his best minister and deputy leader Stuart Ayres over the Barilaro affair because there were, quote, questions that needed to be answered, you might remember I said, well, it wasn't the right thing to do to get the questions answered before you took the job away from the bloke. I told you that I knew Stuart Ayres backwards. I've had many dealings with him and there was no way in the world I said he would be in breach of the Ministerial Code of Conduct. Well, now the leading barrister, Bruce McClintock SC, has found just that, that Stuart Ayres complied with the Ministerial Code of Conduct in relation to the appointment of John Barillaro. It just gets worse by the week for Dominic Perrottet. Remember, he had said that he believed Stuart Ayres, his deputy, did not conduct himself at arm's length from the trade appointment. Ayres has to be returned to his portfolio responsibilities immediately, though I note senior Liberals are now saying to bring back Stuart Ayres would be an absolute disaster. It will start the war again, unquote. The New South Wales government under Perrottet is looking in utter disarray. Now we have the Teals supporting Perrottet because, quote, the New South Wales government has a much stronger record than the Morrison federal government did on climate change, unquote. So Perrottet and his sidekick Keane are going over the same political cliff as Albanese and Bowen. Well, the other disturbing story, which I'll look at during the week, as Russia has announced it's pulling back troops in Ukraine's east, where a Ukrainian counteroffensive has made significant advances in the past week, Russia in trouble in the east. A senior Chinese official has offered Beijing's most robust endorsement to date of Moscow's war in Ukraine, telling a group of Russian lawmakers that China, quote, understands and supports Russia, particularly, quote, on the situation in Ukraine, unquote. The hidden message there is simple. Russia is now saying it believes the territory 
it seeks in Ukraine belongs to Russia. China believes Taiwan belongs to China. The geopolitical world is in a very difficult place. Tonight, as I said, I'll have something to say about the passing of Queen Elizabeth, and I'll make some interesting points about the Queen's handbags and a little bit of poetry. And I have something further to say about energy and the fact that while we mourn, we can't afford a public holiday. At the end of the United States Tennis Championships with two brand new champions and a young 19-year-old Spaniard, Carlos Alcaraz, becoming the number one tennis player in the world, there's a lot of talk about goats, greatest of all time. Well, I'm going to talk to the greatest of all time tonight, and it's not Serena Williams. It's our own Margaret Court. And Pauline Hanson has really climbed into the green, Senator Maureen Faruqi, who's attacked the late Queen as being the leader of a racist empire. I'll talk to Pauline. But we give these people because of preferential voting a seat in the parliament, don't we? For goodness sake, change the voting system. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. There are aspects of the Queen's passing that almost defy understanding. At the beginning of last week, she accepted the resignation of the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. She invited Liz Truss to form a government. And as the world's pictures noted, shook hands with a smile and congratulated her. Britain was singing God Save the Queen. Two days later, Thursday at 6.30pm, Buckingham Palace announced the death of the Queen at Balmoral Castle and outside Buckingham Palace, they were singing God Save the King. Is this the rhythm of life? Liz Truss was the 15th British Prime Minister, but the Queen had seen, met and received 16 Australian Prime Ministers and 14 US Presidents. In a message I posted on my Facebook page on learning of the Queen's passing, I said that I remembered as a child lining the streets of the little township of Oakey in Western Queensland. To call them streets would be to sophisticate what they were, dirt tracks. On the way to an airport that had served Australia's cause in World War II, there she is at the airport on that day. And there we were and there she was in an open car. Each of us felt she was waving to us. It was 1954. She visited 57 Australian towns and cities in 58 days in 1954. She made 157 speeches. Goodness knows how many speeches she had to listen to. But at 27 years of age, she was everything we all thought a princess should be. She was beautiful and always beautifully dressed with a glorious and unforced smile. We were then a country of only 9 million people. Three quarters of the Australian population were just like us. They wanted a glimpse of this young person almost completely remote from our understanding. It was as if she was from another planet. You couldn't help but feel it was her youth. After all, she became the sovereign at 25 and the first prime minister to greet her was her own Winston Churchill, who was then 78. Even so young, she knew she was born for the role. Not just her empire, but the world marveled then at this beautiful young woman with dignity, grace, a sense of occasion, but an almost unselfconscious sense of responsibility. As we grew up with her, we now find that same admiration, respect, and almost reverential awe have accompanied her in her passing. As the flag over Buckingham Palace flew at half-mast, so came the rain. In literature, it's called pathetic fallacy, where inanimate things assume the feelings and responses of human beings. It seemed that even nature was in sympathy with the harsh environment of last Thursday, that this monarch who'd been part of our lives for so long had been taken from us. 
It's not that it was unexpected, but as with any life, no matter the preparation for death, when it comes, it brings with it the burdens of shock and relief and grief. As one young woman outside Buckingham Palace said, as she put up her umbrella, England is crying. Many remember that it was only some months since similar large groups gathered outside the same Buckingham Palace to celebrate the nation's longest reigning monarch in her platinum jubilee. By last Thursday evening, the joy that flooded then through the walls of Buckingham Palace was gone. Like many of us, you can't articulate your feelings on hearing the news, except that we remember where we were when Kennedy was assassinated, when Diana was killed, and we'll remember exactly where we were when we found out that the reign of Elizabeth II, Elizabeth Alexandra Mary, had ended. Tradition demanded that many people found out by looking at the white note in the wooden frame hanging outside the Buckingham Palace gate, which said simply, the Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. There was a universal appeal about Queen Elizabeth. In London on Thursday afternoon, young blokes who'd kept the bar propped up having a beer left the pub, went to Buckingham Palace, and as one bloke said, I just needed to come. Three men embraced, wiping their eyes, their shirts drenched with rain, but echoing our sentiments, we'll always remember this, it's a sad day. A nation has lost its greatest strength, the glue that bound the Commonwealth together. But the world has lost one of its finest diplomats. Boris Johnson has a wonderful way with words, notwithstanding his often eccentric manner. He said, in the hearts of every one of us, there's an ache at the passing of our Queen, a deep and personal sense of loss, far more intense perhaps than we expected. But then this, she seems so timeless and so wonderful that I'm afraid we'd come to believe like children that should just go on and on. Peter Dutton summed it up beautifully in one sentence. One of humanity's lights has gone out. Our Prime Minister said, through the noise and tumult of the years, she embodied and exhibited a timeless decency and an enduring calm. And Paul Keating talked about the 20th century where, quote, the realm of the public good was broadly neglected. Queen Elizabeth understood this and instinctively attached herself to the public good, unquote. Her body now lies in state at Holyrood Palace at the bottom of the Royal Mile in Edinburgh en route to Westminster Abbey. Holyrood has served as the royal residence in Scotland since the 16th century. Her final resting place will be in the King George VI Memorial Chapel at Windsor Castle. I'll have much more to say between now and then. Well, look, in pub talk, whether you are a Republican or a monarchist, you would simply say the late Queen was a champion in every way. She faced world crises and family hardships with an equanimity which earned her admiration worldwide. I want today, in the wake of the United States Tennis Championships, to talk about champions. We now have in men's tennis a world number one who's 19 years of age. He's won his first Grand Slam title, the United States Open, Carlos Alcaraz, wonderful young man who's beaten the Norwegian Kasper Rudd, the youngest player in the Open era. The previous youngest was our own Leighton Hewitt. The women's champion is the 21-year-old Polish girl, very feminine, beautifully dressed, Iga Swiatek. I'm not sure that's the way you pronounce her name, it's the way I do, S-W-I-A-T-E-K. She's won her third Grand Slam, having won the French Open in 2020 and 2022. 
Now, the reason I'm telling you all this, this young lady, though, has been a courageous critic of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But last week, we saw the elimination of Serena Williams and farewells almost every time she appeared and seats emblazoned with the acronym G-O-A-T, GOAT, the greatest of all time. So in the wake of the US Open, I thought I should talk to the person who is truly the greatest of all time, if records are to mean anything, and it's not Serena. It's our own Margaret Court. Margaret Court, you've got to say this slowly, is the only tennis player in history to complete a multiple Grand Slam set. That is, all the singles, women's doubles and mixed doubles of the Australian, French, Wimbledon and US championships in one year, and she won the lot twice. Like Bradman's batting average, forget your goats, Margaret Court's record will never be matched. She is not appropriately honoured because of her views on gender and sexuality. I regard Margaret Court as perhaps our greatest living Australian. Not only did she win 64 Grand Slam titles, I mean, think about it. She won 11 Australian Women's Singles Championships, five French, three Wimbledons, five US Opens. She won 19 Grand Slam Women's Doubles titles, 21 Grand Slam Mixed Doubles. And listen to this, her win-loss performance in Grand Slam singles was 90.12%. On all surfaces, she had a winning percentage of 91.74%. You're talking about goats? That is the best of all time, men or women. Don't give me this goat nonsense. This is Bradman-esque. She won 10 Grand Slam mixed doubles titles with Kenny Fletcher. I played junior doubles with Kenny Fletcher, great fellow. But as well as this, John Howard officially opened the Margaret Court Community Centre on October 5, 2006, established by the Reverend Margaret Court in 1997. In the last financial year, Margaret's community outreach distributed 6,300 tonnes of food at a value of $35 million, meeting the mission statement of the Margaret Court Community Outreach to give hope and care for those in need, giving a hand up, not a handout, to assist in changing the culture of people so they can also have an impact on their families and the broader community, to have centres in all areas of WA in order to relieve the financial burden on the state and to develop nutritional programs to assist schools and families to collaborate and strengthen the wider community. Is there, are there any better or more achieving, more unselfish people on this planet than this woman, Margaret Court. She modestly says the Margaret Court Community Outreach is a testament to God's love, grace and supply. Being as modest as I know Margaret to be, she most probably won't like me telling her that she is the goat, but she is the greatest of all time. She joins me tonight. Margaret, congratulations on all you've done, all you've achieved. I think your tennis record will never be matched. What do you think of all this indulgent talk about Serena and the great player that she is, but She's had a baby and I think lost several Grand Slam singles finals since then. How many Grand Slam finals did you win after you had a baby? Oh, Eleanor, I have never studied that, but I know I <laughs> won quite a few. I know after having, having our first uh, child, I went back and I won 24 out of 25 tournaments in that one year, So, but I also won three of the slams that year and missed one. So 
I probably had one of my best years after I had a baby. Uh, I had a peak of fitness I never knew. And I'll always remember that. They were doing research on a, a, there was a Russian runner and myself at that time, uh, particularly after having children. So uh, I always remember it was one of my best years after having a child. Wonderful. You retired after Wimbledon in 1966, married Barry Court in 1967, whose father and brother were both premiers WA. You returned to tennis in 68 and won all four Grand Slams. But in 70, that's what I remember. There's a wonderful book. Uh, you can read all this. The kids should read it. The book on Mar- the biography. It's Margaret Court. That's all it's called. A lovely, lovely story. And never complained, this woman. Never complained. But in 1970, Margaret beat Billie Jean King. And we see Billie Jean. She's there on our screens every time we see it. There's a Grand Slam tournament. We don't see Margaret Court. No, we see Billie Jean King. But it was the longest match in Wimbledon history for women. 14, 12, 11, 9. No one, not a word out of this woman, but Margaret, tell us the story now. No one knew you were injured and in pain. And the truth is that that gone to three sets, you couldn't have gone on. Well, that's right. I tore the uh, ankle in the quarterfinals. So I pulled out of the doubles and the mix. And a doctor friend said, we can put an injection in. It'll last two and a half hours. So I got through the semis easily. <laughs> and then in the final, I knew if it went any longer, two and a half hours, uh, I'd probably lose. So that's why I thought, thank God it didn't go to a third set because it was really tight match, very close. They they said probably one of the best women's finals oh, yeah. uh, that they've ever oh, had yeah. at Wimbledon. So Billie Jean and I always, people have all wanted a court king final. And I always remember that match probably as, as one of the best uh, finals that I'd played in. Magnificent. And as I said, the book is called Margaret Court. Kids read a simple story about how this, this young woman from an ordinary upbringing became a champion. I think she's unbelievably inspirational. Margaret, when you retired, you founded this Margaret Court Community Outreach, a not-for-profit organisation. Am I right in saying you've got over 100 volunteers and you distribute about 70 tonnes or more of food a week? Well, we have about 150 volunteers oh. now, Alan, and, and we're up to over 100 tonnes of food Whoa. a week. It has Whoa. really grown since everything is the way it is in the nation, and we're finding now that people come in, uh, do I pay my mortgage or do I eat? So we're getting a different, uh, because we've been doing this for 23 years now, and so there's a different type of person coming in also, Uh, and uh, we just see the needs there in community. And I think since COVID, uh, you know, there's a lot of people sort of been through depression, been through a lot of fear. Uh, You know, they just, uh, there's a different type of people coming through now. But, you know, I love doing it. Uh, We enjoy it. Uh, We got now a big warehouse. We originally started with one fridge and a few boxes and we've really grown and where we need trucks and and all that sort of thing now because we have two other outlets with it in Quinana and also in Forestfield. 
But, uh, you know, you're helping people. You see people's lives you're come amazing. in. And people's lives get changed yeah. through it, which is wonderful. You are amazing. The abundance of food and clothing, I know, comes via donations from the community and business sectors. And you don't just do that. You try to encourage, don't you? I know you try to empower, equip families and individuals with the necessary life skills so they won't always be dependent, so they can change their current circumstances. That's what you're about, isn't it? Well, that's what I would like now. We have helped people in different areas, but I'd like to see us uh, do workshops where we can help uh, people more in that uh, area. Uh, but we don't get any government support or any support no, from that. No. It's all donations where yeah. people give into it and help us. But it's about the whole person, spirit, soul and body, not just about feeding them. You want people to get their self-worth back or respect brilliant, because there's brilliant. a lot of people that haven't worked for a long time. Mm. So I remember us uh, getting about eight or ten people and teaching them how to drive forklifts because we needed some people to do forklift driving for us. Every one of them went out and got a job and that really showed us something Wonderful. because that helped them to that's get back it. on their feet. I mean, that's what the yeah. trucks have on their side. All Margaret's trucks have on the side giving hope, life and love to the community. And during the lockdown from three locations around Perth, there were hampers with dry and fresh foods available for anyone experiencing hardship. And that support that Margaret provides is available to anyone in need of practical assistance. Now, look, I know you're unbelievably modest and you wouldn't be human if you weren't hurt by the appalling criticism that you've received. None of your critics have achieved what you have. None have given hope to those who thought there was no hope as you have. Now, you went to Wimbledon this year. I didn't see you on the telly. How were you treated? Well, they treat you well, but, uh, you know, you're not allowed to talk to the press. Uh, I think because of my beliefs and my stand, what I stood for. But I think, you know, the thing is, I've, Ellen, I've had enough of the LGBT, enough of the tennis and the press and that putting me down over the years when I think, well, you know, I, I loved playing for my nation. I represented my nation. I love all people. I'm not against people. But, you know, I, I stand up for the Bible and what I believe the Bible says, and I should be allowed to in Definitely. freedom of speech. Definitely. And I think also with Serena, they go back into my past of where when I first played, uh, here in Australia, they said there was no overseas players come down. It was only <laughs> Australians. But that's not true no. because in those early years we had Maria Bueno. Maria Bueno. We had the number one, number two in the world. Yeah. And I was a nobody. Yep. And I beat her, the number one in the world, in the quarterfinals. Yep. And so Billie Jean said there was no players. Mm. Well, Billie Jean used to come down probably two years after yep. that. And we had about five girls here mm. that were really good, Jan yep. Lehane, Leslie Barry. Yep. They beat the American girls that's, in the quarterfinals, so you it. didn't hear anything well, they about them. them. Oh, let and me Leslie tell, Barry I won was, two French. I played in that Australian Juniors the year you won your first Australian Open and you were a junior. Margaret won as a junior. They flew Maria Bueno out here and Christine Truman, who was the semi-finals at Wimbledon, and Jan Lehane and Margaret cleaned them up Maria Bueno, they didn't get a look in. They made a lot of excuses. And this lady you're looking at here tonight won her first of 11 Australian Open titles when she was a junior. Margaret, look, don't worry about all of these people. The tennis, your records will stand alongside the very best. In community service, 
Your efforts are without equal. And those who know you as I do, Margaret, are proud of you. We love you and we honour you. And at the end of the day, you don't have to worry about anybody else. Great to talk to you. No and we'll wonder. talk again soon. Thanks, we'll, we'll catch up soon. And, and I don't lose any sleep over it. No. And I don't <laughs> worry about it. But I think, you know, facts are facts. And I think I'd like to put them straight sometimes. Absolutely. But it's always lovely talking to you. You're awesome. You're looking really well, Ellen. Thank you, Margaret. It's great we'll, to talk We'll with catch you. up soon. There she is. None better than that. That's the goat. That's the real goat. The greatest of all time. No one on the planet can boast that record. Margaret Court. Well, to matters closer to home, may I begin first by saying this. We are all in mourning at the death of Queen Elizabeth. It is a private matter. Everyone will feel differently. As I said earlier about Boris Johnson's observations, you somehow keep expecting like a little child that the Queen will turn up somewhere. Proof of what she herself has said often, grief is the price you pay for love. And we are grieving. That said, do we need a public holiday? For what? To grieve and remember? We're doing that now. There are millions of Australians who would have doctor's appointments and have been waiting for months. Do they now wait again? I've said on this program often that the construction industry is on its knees. Many big construction outfits have gone broke for so many reasons. Those who survive are way behind. If you need concrete, you have to book three weeks ahead. In this environment, with all the difficulties we face, a holiday on the 22nd of this month is simply unaffordable. Which brings me to this point, and I've said it before. The new Prime Minister has had a significant makeover. He dresses superbly. The sentiments he's expressed, as with the Queen and other matters, bring him great credit. But it's on policy that he'll come unstuck. He doesn't seem to understand that. He and Bowen on energy policy are leading the nation into an economic suicide trap and leading his party into the political wilderness. They won't survive for a second term. I'm not Nostradamus, but I told you 18 months ago that Morrison couldn't win the election. I'm telling you now, this net zero emission stuff and 82% renewables by 2030 is a pipe dream. With it, of course, comes the demonization of coal. I don't know who was advising this mob in Canberra, perhaps the same people who are advising the Reserve Bank when they said there'd be no interest rate increases before 2024. Only last month, the International Energy Agency said that the global consumption of coal was rising to 8 billion tonnes this year, matching the record set in 2013. Worldwide coal consumption was up 6% last year. And while gas prices continue to soar, and by the way, gas is also a fossil fuel, more countries are switching to coal, which is good for us. Thermal coal produces electricity. The Hunter Valley has the best in the world. Coal royalties and coal export income are helping us out of our debt. But Bowen thinks we don't need it for cheap electricity here. It is a political fiction that mankind causes most or all climate change. There's a publication called the World Climate Declaration, signed by over 1,100 scientists and professionals. The authors say, authors say there is no climate emergency. The Nobel Prize laureate, Professor Eva Gia-Eva, rightly argues that this business about climate change has degenerated into a discussion based on beliefs, not on sound, self-critical science. These authors will tell you that the scale of the opposition to so-called settled climate science is extraordinary, given how difficult it is in academia to raise grants for any climate research 
that departs from the political orthodoxy. I mentioned often here Professor Richard Lindzen, the American atmospheric physicist who was the Alfred P. Sloan Professor of Meteorology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He disputes the scientific consensus on climate change and criticises what is called climate alarmism. He's now said that the current climate narrative is absurd, but acknowledges that trillions of dollars and the relentless propaganda from grant-dependent academics and agenda-driven journalists currently says it's not absurd. How many times have I asked whether the government in Canberra has a map of the world? A week ago, tens of thousands of Czechs protested in Prague against the government, demanding more state help with rising energy bills. It's been described as the largest manifestation of public discontent over the worst cost of living crisis in three decades. A week ago in Germany, more than 70,000 protesters took to the streets of Leipzig to protest about the government's inefficiency in supporting measures to overcome the rising cost of living, including increased energy prices. There's a general election in Italy on September 25. The centre-right coalition is tipped to win if anyone ever wins in Italian elections, but the 45-year-old Giorgio Maloney, a lady, the front runner for the centre-right coalition, is promising voters she will reduce consumer energy bills if she wins the election. Of course, that puts her offside with the bureaucrats in the European Commission. But it's interesting that Giorgia Maloney is also pro-Trump, pro-family, pro-life, pro-traditional values, pro-Christianity and anti-no borders. On the energy front, a recent survey in the UK shows the extent of the crisis facing Liz Truss. 60% of British factories may fail, crushed by exorbitant energy prices. Nearly half the manufacturers have experienced a jump in electricity bills of nearly 100% in the past year. As Rod Dreher, an American writer and editor has said, Putin is a son of a bitch for sure, but you can't heat your home or run your country's factories with anger at Putin, however red hot it burns. How extraordinary that the European fate awaits us when we are a raw materials superpower but Bowen and Albanese are taking to a, us to a place we should never have contemplated going to. But where are the opposition? Dutton should emphatically say we oppose all of this stuff and we will use our raw materials, which are the envy of the world, to benefit Australians and the Australian economy, and we're happy to fight an election on it. Peter Dutton, put your stake in the ground now. Well, look, in the wake of the Queen's passing, there have been a lot of ugly things said by people who are a minority, I might add. It has always fascinated me as to how such people who want to say hateful things about others somehow are given a platform. The critics of the late Queen don't speak for too many Australians. Nonetheless, we have seen recently with members of parliament like Lydia Thorpe and Adam Bant a complete disregard for the national flag and in the case of Lydia Thorpe, an almost naked hatred of this country. Just on that, I just had a young man say to me before I started the program tonight, I can't understand, he said to me, he works with us here, he's very bright, Charlie, and he said, I can't understand how people beg to migrate to this country and then in everything they say and do, want to undermine it. Very good point. But they're allowed seats in the national parliament. But if you believe in freedom of speech, as I do, people have to be able to say what they think, I suppose, 
but there are limitations. I had an email today from a viewer about some bloke who's a rabid left-wing musician living in Sydney. His posts about the Queen are abhorrent. But when this bloke attacks Dai Lee, whose story about escaping from Vietnam and surviving and then becoming a federal member of parliament, that's quite inspirational. And this bloke writes, I have a particular contempt for right-wing refos who are refugees. Now, of course, if you're left-wing, you can say whatever you like, can't you? My viewer asks me if this falls into the category of race, hate, speech, and I guess it does. He's made a complaint to the Human Rights Commission. Good luck with that. But the same bloke, he'd want me to mention NBC, but I'm not going to deliver him that favour. But he said of the death of the Queen, good riddance, QE2, you effing parasite. Then we've got the Greens Senator, Maureen Faruqi, who's called the late Queen a leader of a racist empire. And she tweeted, quote, condolences to those who know the Queen. I cannot mourn the leader of a racist empire built on stolen lives, land and wealth of colonised peoples. We are reminded of the urgency of the treaty with First Nations, justice and reparation for British colonies and becoming a republic, unquote. Well, Pauline Hanson did not miss. She responded, and I quote, your attitude appalls and disgusts me. When you migrated to Australia, Pauline says, you took every advantage of this country, unquote. I should point out Maureen Faruqi migrated from Pakistan, where they blow up their leaders like my friend Benazir Bhutto. She's now dead, blown up in Pakistan. And this woman left Pakistan to come to a better country. Pauline Hanson went on, you took citizenship, bought multiple homes and a job in the parliament. It's clear you're not happy, <laughs> this is Pauline. So pack your bags and piss off back to Pakistan, unquote. Well, it's the language they talk in the pubs, but it's spot on. And Pauline joins me. Pauline, thank you for your time. And I know, look, that language is very explicit, but at the same time, what is wrong with these people, do you think? Ellen, I don't get it. You know, these people come out here for a better way of life. They've left the country that they're not happy in. And they come out here and then they start complaining, whinging about what's happened here. You know, they disregard me as an Australian that was actually born here. If anyone's going to whinge or complain about anything, shouldn't it be I and all other Australians that were born here? I think they are misinformed. They don't understand. They're, they're putting out... You but know, they get a seat in the to, parliament. To the people they get a seat in the parliament. For them, it's a shame. I mean, who are they representing? I mean, yes, of course this nation was colonised. As a result, significant wealth has been generated and shared with everybody, including Marine Faruqi and Indigenous Australians. Pauline, she seems to have done all right. I wonder what their view might be if the Chinese moved in on us. They may not be as free to make <laughs> these sorts of comments. <laughs> that would be a hell of a shock because if that ever happens, I'd like to see her reaction or the Japanese or some other nation who, um, who are pushing their own views or communism, um, you know, if the Japanese had taken over Australia, she wouldn't have been here, living here in this country. It's a real shame, you know. I wish, you know, she's still got a house in Pakistan that I understand. I suggest, I think she should go back there, over to Pakistan. Back to Pakistan, if you're worried about, you know, people's rights yeah. and freedoms, I don't think women yeah, have go back, to go the, back to the Pakistan. right to actually yeah. um, free movement. So yeah. I think, you know. Yeah, go back to Pakistan back and jo join hands with the Taliban, eh? But Pauline, look, on a, another point, what miserable lives these people must live, like this woman, Maureen Faruqi and Lydia Thorpe, hating the country that's given them a home and wealth 
and to our eternal damnation, I might add a seat in the parliament. I mean, that man is saying it's time to become a republic with no respect for what the achievements of the Westminster system have given us and the inheritance from Britain of democracy. Bant's taken advantage of that to become a member of the national parliament. Helen, this country would not be what it is today, and I, you know, that's my opinion, if it was not settled by the British. Yes. A lot of other countries were looking at it. A lot of countries throughout the world were settled by other nations or taken over by other nations by all means. But we we are where we are today. We can't turn we back the hands of time yeah. and go back to what it was no. over 200 years ago. It's not the case. If you're not happy here, and I'll say that to anyone, whether you're born here or not, if you're not happy with it, then go and find another country that suits you and go and live there. Because all I've seen over the years is division that is actually happening. We were getting over the hump of racism that was part of our past, and I admit that. But we were getting over that, where people were being united, seen as Australians. Since these people have come on the scene, all I see now is division, hatred and a reversal, and what we now have is reverse racism. And I have not, no time for these people. You're absolutely right, Pauline. By God, there's not too many people speak as you speak. I mean, there's Bant who refuses to put the Australian flag with its Union Jack corner behind him at press conferences. And now there's Maureen Faruqi saying that the Queen was a leader of a racist empire, and she said that on the day of the Queen's death. I wonder what Maureen Faruqi would say about the Pakistan from which she escaped, which now harbours the Taliban. Pauline, you once moved a motion in the Senate that it was okay to be white. Do you feel, it's unfashionable to say this stuff, but do you feel that white people in employment and other walks of life are being pushed to the sideline? Of course they are, Ellen. There's no, no, um, no argument about that. And I hear it all the time. We're, 20 odd years ago, or when I was first in Parliament, 96, 97, I saw the list of people who got elected, not elected, the people that got employed by the government. And it was people of Indigenous, non then non-English speaking background, then you went to women, and the bottom of the list was the white Anglo-Celtic male. So we have been treated like this for a long time. These people have to realise, Alan, over the years I got criticised. I was thrown the word racist at me. I was um, pillared by the media. You know, I, a lot of things were thrown at me. I have never, ever said anything of, of anywhere near what Maureen Faruqi or Lydia Thorpe or Adam Band has ever said. That's Yet the public and the media pillared me. Absolutely. I suggest that those Australians out there, it's about time you got over your apathy. It's about time you've got some backbone about you because I'm sick and tired of hearing from people that they're, they're, they're not happy the way our country is going. If you need a leader, I'm here and I'm still here in the parliament and I will be your voice. But it's about time Australians start finding their own voice before it's too late because these grubs will keep going till they suppress you that much that this country will change to a country you will no longer want to live in. Good on you. Good on you, Pauline. You asked Penny Wong in the parliament to define net zero. And she said, I'm not sure how to explain it other than to say it means net zero. But what they won't tell us, Pauline, is how much net zero will cost. Net zero by 2030, 43% reduction in emissions by 2030. In law, 
It's been passed by the 12 Greens and the independent Senator David Pocock. But when you ask anybody, and it got Bill Shorten into trouble at the election before the last, what will this cost, not just in electricity generation, but in agriculture and transport, no one can answer. But the key point here, Pauline, is the Assistant Minister for Climate Change, and she's a nice enough lady, Jenny McAllister, she said, but she's now the Assistant Minister for Climate Change. She said that net zero, <laughs> Pauline's shaking her head, listen to this, was a, matter, was a matter of balancing emission generators with sinks, quote, to achieve a balance between anthropogenic emissions by sources and removals by sinks of greenhouse gases and what that really means is a balance between sources and sinks. Now, Pauline, if that is an answer, they're in trouble before the fight has begun, surely. They didn't even know how to answer it. They had to, they had to go through the Paris Agreement. They found that statement in Article 4 because that's all they could find. The Paris Agreement doesn't even use the word net zero. It's not even in the whole document. The fact is, Alan, is if they cannot answer net zero, that tells me how brain dead they are with the policies they put up about climate change and 43% emissions reductions because they have no idea. But, and but, heaven help us where yeah. we're headed now under this government with the Greens and David Pocock, um, it concerns me. But again, I'll tell people, you've got to feel some hurt and pain. You voted for them. You put them in there. You've given them control of this country. So when you start to realise the hurt and pain, and it will come with the cost of living, electricity, the way of life, the standards of living, just look at what's happening in Europe and in England, and then you might stay, start to wake up to yourselves and find yeah. your voice. Forget about, you know, knowing all your footy um, players. Forget about watching football. You might take an interest in politics yeah. because, you know what, that's about your future. That, that is so true. Look, when asked how much it would cost Australians to reduce emissions by 43%, Penny Wong said Labor had already released transparent modelling and the modelling showed the reduction of carbon dioxide emissions would create 604,000 jobs, that five out of six there'd be, would be new jobs in the regions, there'd be $76 billion of investment and 82% renewable energy by 2013. Pauline, I think that means that there are tooth fairies at the bottom of the garden. It'll never happen, but how much damage will be done along the way, eh? But listen, before you go, before you go, what's your final advice to Maureen Faruqi? Alan, I think I've just about said all that I needed to say. And actually, I said, you know, go back to Pakistan. Actually, I'll take her to the airport. There's no problems. You can pack bags and I'll actually drive her to the airport. I'll tell other people out here. You know, I grew up in this country. We say save the Queen every morning. We raise the flag. There was pride in our country, who we are as a nation. I don't believe that pride is there anymore. It's about people belong somewhere. We're not part of the British Empire. We're part of what's the Commonwealth. And it's about a shared people with responsibilities and knowing that you you have a place. And it's about working together. She's not prepared to work with me to enhance this country and everyone in it, whether you're black or white, then she she shouldn't be in the parliament. She shouldn't be in this country. Go back to Pakistan. Good on you. Good on you. And as, as Pauline said, she's happy to drive her to the airport. Good to talk to you, Pauline. You keep talking out. There are a lot of people out there who are cheering in terms of what you've said tonight. Thank you for your time. There she is, the One Nation leader, Pauline Hanson. 
As I mentioned earlier, the Queen's body has been moved from Balmoral Castle in Scotland to the Holyrood Palace in Edinburgh, where the coffin will remain in the throne room for fewer than 24 hours. It's heading towards midday over there now. In about two and a half hours, the Queen's coffin will then be moved by procession to St Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh. King Charles will earlier in the day in London give his reply to the parliamentary condolences inside the 900-year-old Westminster Hall, which is not only the oldest building in the parliament, but the only part of the ancient Palace of Westminster, which is the seat of the British Parliament, which survives in almost its original form. The King and his Queen Consort will then fly to Edinburgh to inspect the Guard of Honour at the Palace of Holyrood. And then the King and members of the Royal Family will participate in a procession in approximately three hours time to move the Queen's coffin from the throne room at Holyrood House, as it's called, to St Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh. Charles and Camilla will follow the coffin on foot. When the coffin arrives at St Giles, the Crown of Scotland will be placed on its top and it'll be guarded by vigils from the Royal Company at the Arches, allowing Scots to pay their respects. The King and Queen Consort will then head back to Holyrood where the new monarch will have an audience with Scotland's First Minister, the hard to stomach, that's my words, Nicola Sturgeon. The Scottish Parliament will be sitting. King Charles will receive a motion of condolence from members of the Scottish Parliament and give his reply. At approximately half past seven Monday night their time, half past four tomorrow morning our time, the King and Queen will hold a vigil back at St Giles with other members of the Royal Family. Now, King Charles is 73, Queen Camilla is 75. Charles, the oldest person to accede to the throne in British history. At the pace he's been setting, he is bound to be exhausted. It's more than interesting to note though, some of the factors that contributed to the easy charm of Queen Elizabeth. I'm indebted to some excellent writing by Tony Wright, the associate editor and special writer for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, who reminds us that always close to the Queen was at least one of her five ladies in waiting. We've all seen people thrusting bouquets of flowers in the Queen's direction, she accepts them all. She would carefully then palm them off to one of the ladies in waiting, who would then swiftly make it handed off to the chain of other anonymous helpers, sometimes the police, the last of whom would pack the flowers in one of the following cars and they'd be distributed usually to hospitals. The Queen was reported to have owned over 200 handbags. They never carried money or a mobile phone. There were, I presume, fashion statements, but they had other uses. As Tony Wright reminds us, Whenever you met the Queen, the handbag was draped over her left arm. If she switched it to her right arm, the staff knew what she was signalling to be that she was signalling to be rescued, most probably tired of the conversation. If she was sitting down, the handbag was on the floor. If she moved it to the table, she was bored and a lady-in-waiting would immediately come to extricate her from the unwanted conversation, discreetly, of course. If she then wanted what we would call a get-me-out-of-here moment, She'd twist her wedding ring and the staff knew that the boredom was about to end. It is extraordinary to reflect that the Queen visited Australia 16 times between 1954 when she was 27 and 2011 when she was 85. And remember, we're a long way away from London. It was when the Queen and Prince Philip returned to Australia in 1963 that the then Prime Minister Robert Menzies quoted the words of a love poem, There is a lady sweet and kind by the 17th century composer Thomas Ford. I did but see her passing by 
and yet I love her till I die, unquote. The young queen was more than slightly embarrassed. The next verse was not quoted by Prime Minister Menzies, which talked about what it might next become if only, quote, I had her fast betwixt mine arms, unquote. Thankfully, Prime Minister Menzies didn't go that far. Look, before we go, I referred to this earlier tonight, but I must come back to this looming energy crisis. Can we turn our minds briefly again to Europe? A new report from the GMK Centre, which is a leading Ukrainian mining researcher, has found that countless steel plants across Europe have had to shut shop over the last couple of months because they can't pay their power bills. In Germany, at least three steel blast furnaces have shut down. Production is now, now halted at a large Polish steel plant. The same goes for several Czech, Slovakian and Serbian blast furnaces. Italian, French and Spanish steel plants have experienced large scale shutdowns, delays and production halts. It isn't only businesses that are suffering. The New York Times reports that people across Central Europe are clear cutting forests and grinding up centuries old trees in the name of renewable energy. But I suppose, how can you blame them? I mean, how would you heat your home and cook your dinner if the Russians cut off your gas? How would you get through winter if your country shut down its coal-fired power plants only to be replaced with weather-dependent Chinese-made solar panels and wind turbines? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, think about it. How would the average Aussie react when he's asked to pay $34 for a pint of beer? Might sound outlandish. That's the situation in the United Kingdom. According to Tom Stainer, the CEO of the UK's largest single issue independent consumer group, the Campaign for Real Ale, and I quote him, quote, beer and pub businesses are facing increases in energy bills of around 500%, but they simply cannot increase their prices by the same amount, or we'd end up with 15 pound or 20 pound pints at the bar, unquote. After being duped into buying an expensive electric car, the state will then kindly ask you to avoid charging it due to power shortages. Just ask the Californians. Last week, the Californian government announced, quote, a groundbreaking world-leading plan to achieve 100% zero emission vehicle sales by 2035, only to then to beg electric car owners to avoid charging during the California heat wave a few days later. To sum it all up, this is what I call greenflation. Why are food prices rising all around the world? The green types wanted to ban nitrogen fertilisers made from fossil fuels, less food produced. Why are power prices rising? The green types wanted to replace coal-fired power plants with unreliable wind and solar plants, less energy. Why are steel, aluminium and practically all critical industrial materials rising in price? Well, manufacturers can't keep up with power prices and have passed on their costs. It may be that the only way for things to get better is for things to get worse, and they will. That's it from me tonight. Thank you for your company. Fred Paul is up next. I'll see you tomorrow night at eight o'clock. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.